One year ago today, the country watched in shock as rioters flooded through the doors of the United States Capitol. Inside the building, a joint session of Congress had been set to certify Joe Biden's electoral vote win. That day, 150 law enforcement individuals were injured and five people were left dead. Just hours earlier, Trump spoke to his supporters at a rally near the White House, calling on Vice President Mike Pence to reject Biden's win. Speaking to the crowd, he urged his supporters to fight like hell. We fight like hell, and if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. One year later, 64% of Americans believe U.S. democracy is in crisis and at risk of failing, according to an NPR poll. Among Republicans, two-thirds agree with the verifiably false claim that, quote, voter fraud helped Joe Biden win the 2020 election, end quote, a sentiment otherwise known as the big lie. The country remains deeply divided on what happened on January 6, with more than half of Democrats saying January 6 was an attempted coup or insurrection, while Republicans are more likely to describe it as a riot that got out of control. In a televised speech today, President Biden said rioters who stormed the Capitol, quote, held a dagger at the throat of America and American democracy. To discuss the aftermath of the January 6th attack and its impact on American democracy, KCSB's Alexandra Goldberg joins criminal justice professor Brian Levin, director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism. One year ago today, a joint session of Congress met at the U.S. Capitol to certify Joe Biden's presidential win. And around 2 p.m., a mob of protesters stormed past police barricades and into the Capitol building. This was all in an attempt to overturn the 2020 electoral results, as the rioters believed Democrats illegally stole the election. And this was the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Now, one year later, a select committee on the January 6th attack continues to investigate the insurrection. There's a lot to unpack here, so let's speak with Professor Brian Levin about some of the events that have occurred within the past 12 months. Brian joined me last year right after the attacks to talk about some of the hate symbols that were present at the attack and what could be punishable under constitutional law. Thank you so much for coming back to speak with us here at KCSBFM. And before we unpacked the year that followed the January 6, 2021 insurrection, I want to start by taking us back to that day. Now, what were your thoughts as you watched the events transpire on January 6th? Well, it was interesting. Like everyone in my field was like sitting there at a bad firework show, you know, going, okay, what's going to happen? And when I got calls from reporters beforehand they said what are you looking at because before we were looking listen to this we were looking at state capitals really interesting about the insurrection it didn't just pop out of nowhere like spontaneous combustion we saw years before i wrote a piece on it about the oregon standoff and occupation then we saw liberate the liberate movement by the time this thing was stopped by facebook it had just under 3 million members. I stopped counting when it went into the 200s. It was, it was just during a period of time when we were like spinning too many plates. But that gives you an idea of the, the expansion of it and how uh, Facebook, Meta, whatever, whatever those wonderful Americans want to call themselves, were able to be used as kind of this highway to hell. 
And what I mean is you could be like working on a cure for cancer in that Facebook groups, or you could be like a combination of like Nazi Satan occultists. And, and just by virtue of the fact that there are people who are vulnerable, particularly during the pandemic, you really had a perfect storm, more people online, more people experiencing personal stress, family estrangements, income uncertainty, inability to connect with people in, in the social way that we usually do. These kind of stressors created a polarization, a fracturing, a tribalism but also a hybridization. So the platform, for instance, liberate, in other words, liberate against, liberate against uh, vaccine restrictions. And what do we see? We have a militia here in California and various groups, some aren't, that have gone to the Capitol and, and, and caused damage, but have also been involved in conflictual rallies across the state. And a lot of them include the same folks. So what happened after Liberate stopped the steal? But what I think was so interesting, this narrative, and again, you also had QAnon, you had a collection. Post-Charlottesville, there was an interesting spectrum of groups, some which overlapped, some didn't, some had people with similar depths of prejudice, some who were more uh, culturally oriented to it they just like sticking their finger in biden's eye kind of thing but they they weren't exponential nazis the bottom line is this expanding reservoir of grievance gave birth to what we saw at the insurrection the more information that comes out is that he knew about what was going on and did not intervene to stop it therefore you also did not get the backup that the capital and dc police needed the issue today is, though, we have a fractured and diversified extremism landscape. And while far right and white supremacists uh, are the most prominent, they're not the only ones. You also have to look at group structure. We're thinking this in the realm of in public brazen activity, which ranges from you know adjacent Nazis and Nazis walking down the mall in Washington, D.C. late last year. Even after Charlottesville, this brazenness is a precursor. Violence is a precursor. But what people don't understand with regard to political polarization, it's a much more splintered and fractured environment. And it's also one that takes advantage of different strata, not only organizationally, but across different platforms of social media. So we have these echo chambers, and they tend to reverberate and actually emotively respond to people who are already under stress and willing to accept conspiracism, as well as stereotyping. The bottom line is we're in a very polarized society and there are various reverberative uh, places where that stone can skip. It can skip over and, and develop currency over COVID restrictions in California, but maybe over Second Amendment insurrectionism in the Carolinas or, or issues relating to abortion and women's rights in Texas. The view of current disputes as some existential threat combined with the hybridization of personal frustrations, fear, and angst. It makes people respond to these damaging, these toxic stereotypes, prejudices, and hatreds. And what I'm saying to you is that stone skipping is not going to sink because we have that surface tension of our socio-political landscape.
so lit up and there's a currency in exploiting it. I wanted to move on to a discussion about the prosecution of those behind the insurrection. We see 50 plus defendants have been sentenced for their role in the attack, with fewer than half sent to jail for their crimes. What do you make of these consequences and what do they say about how the crimes of extremism and hate are persecuted in America? What I think is important to understand is there were strata to, to the people who attacked the Capitol. It was a large you know, set of concentric circles, all the people who were upset. What I'm saying is we, we have a multi-layered seeping of the toxic waste of conspiracism of bigotry and yeah you know uh i can't stand the the chest thumping nazi as much as the next guy or or person or or any person but what i think is important male or female is that we recognize that there is a difference to a layering of violence that does not mean a justification for it but a layering of violence that we see at some ends of the ideological spectrum versus a violence that, that's, you know, part of the, the peppermint swirl of, of, of that frozen custard. And, and it, it manifests itself in different places and in different ways. So what I'm saying to you is we need to change our federal law. We don't need a domestic terrorism law, but we must protect state capitals, government entities, make them gun-free zones, uh, provide all kinds of support. We're seeing school teachers, election officials, public health officials being intimidated. We're seeing a regionalization of this extremism where, where a gallon of hate can go a lot further than it can in D.C. now. What I mean is you can have a lot more intimidating leverage by showing up to a local school board meeting up in Northern California than try getting close to the Capitol right now. So, so bottom line is we're seeing a fracturing, a regionalization, a tribalization, and some of that strata is going to be almost the, the, the looky-loos who, who, who trampled into the capital after the more violent folks came in first, but they still represent an obscenity to the rule of law. The bottom line is we have a very fractured society. We see over 700 people now with respect to prosecutions uh, in, in the insurrection. But remember, a relatively small number, a relatively small number of the, these folks belong to groups like the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. What we did see, by the way, what they did was terrible, but we're seeing a lot of freelancers, uh, QAnon folks, neo-Confederates, Second Amendment insurrectionists, which say they have a subjective right to respond against armed tyranny. And that's an output that can be worn at many extremist balls. And that's what I'm worried about when we see uh, these far-right groups transfer and share the same villains and stereotypes. You don't have to ideologically agree as much as fear and culturally bond. And I think that's very important. That's why we're seeing fascists who might include uh, uh, an occasional token person of whatever, like the Proud Boys, uh, be able to congregate with promoters of Western civilization who actually are tied to and sometimes the same as white nationalists and white supremacists. So we're, we're seeing a blurring of this. I want to close this point with one thing. 
Reverend Vivian, who I had the pleasure of representing, the first thing I ever did as a lawyer, um, his, his, his group about peaceful resolution, he would speak to people. He was Martin Luther King's preacher. MLK say he was the best preacher that ever lived. And he would go to young people and say, we're waiting for you. And he warned back in the 90s to me. He said, Doc, what you're going to see is a stealth assault on voting rights, on civil rights that will, co that will come under a mainstream banner. And darn it, the voting rights. And darn it, he was, he was right. So I think the insurrection, if it taught us anything, is that our democracies are as only as strong as the trust and the work we put in them. And raising a fist, as, as uh, mythological as it sounds, does nothing to pass a vote. It does nothing to aid a survivor, nor does it change a policy. We have to have people of nonviolence, not talking about resistance to it, imminent violent assault but i'm talking about we as a society and we're seeing this we're starting to see data that it doesn't just stay on one side of the street we have an increasing number of americans across the ideological spectrum who support violence as a way to resolve disputes we also see uh, one particular tilt being responsible for the overwhelming number of homicides particularly mass killings that are done at the altar of political violence over recent years. Since 2018, white supremacists, far right, and adjacent groups are responsible for the highest number of homicides in the United States. Thank you so much for that analysis and all your comments, Professor. And before we wrap up this conversation, are there any final words you would like to add? Yes. I would like to talk to the community of Santa Barbara and the, the gauchos. Here's some gauchos that live there. Use your university as a place that can assist this new state of hate commission. Maybe there can be some kind of virtual involvement. The commission has to be established first. But what I'm saying to you is we have myriad UC institutions that are next to human relations commissions or some kind of community groups where we can work together. All this starts in the local communities. It's the teachers, the soccer coaches, the clergy and people of goodwill across a religious spectrum who can work together. And let's make a mill of that human relations infrastructure along with that academic infrastructure and then be part of the statewide initiative. Look it up. Assembly Bill 1126 signed into law in October by Governor Newsom, which would populate an analyst state of hate commission that interlocks with community and academia. So keep your eyes open, do great things. There's some wonderful research and some wonderful community activity that's come out of your region and you have a friend anytime you need. One of the key things we learned from Santa Barbara is the, is the role of not only an embrace of violence, and, and some kind of personal issue, but also the role of the glorification of misogynistic violence. Key to much of this is a maelstrom of hatred, which includes not only violence against foreigners,
but violence against people closest to them and misogyny. And, and we have a lot of lessons to learn uh, from the Santa Barbara community. And, and in spite of it all, it remains a community of inquiry and peace. And anything the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism can do for the Santa Barbara region, thank you so much. That was criminologist and civil rights attorney Brian Levin, also the director for the Center of the Study for Hate and Extremism, speaking with KCSB's Alexandra Goldberg. For more information about Professor Levin, head to csusb.edu.